Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. This is Central Texas Life with Ann Harder. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Central Texas Life. It is a great honor for me to introduce you to Shannon Cedric Davis. She's coming to us via Zoom from San Antonio, and um, Shannon is, uh, she's just an, an interesting, wonderful person who was in Waco not too long ago as our keynote speaker for the Athena Awards luncheon. She is the CEO of Bridgeway Foundation and author of this book, to stop a warlord uh it was shannon it's first of all it's great to have you with us we're both kind of in a, a little icy period when we're uh, taping this so good good to see that you got the power on there in san antonio oh great to be with you yes thank you and uh it's finally warming up today you gotta you gotta love texas weather one day uh ice storms and the next day hitting 60 degrees so. you know they, that's what they say just wait five minutes and then it'll change um you of course were a baylor law school graduate and you are a passionate advocate for social justice um I, I, I recall, you know, when when you were talking to the group about your work through uh, Bridgeway, and I, I just, it, it was so gripping and, and something that's so devastating for us to hear, but we need to hear. What got you involved, first of all, in, in social justice efforts? You know, I was really fortunate growing up. I had, um, I have some extraordinary family uh, to amazing parents who uh, really uh, paid attention to things that, um, you know, that for lack of a better way to phrase it, that made my heart beat a little faster. Uh, and often those themes were in and around justice issues. And so um, they very much encouraged me to continue pursuing uh, this um, this theme uh, in my life, and and look for ways uh, to make um, make my career centered around it, that type of theme, and that's exactly what I did. I ended up going to law school at Baylor, uh, as you mentioned, and um, and then later uh, started work with an organization called International Justice Mission that was focused on. Um, largely around helping children who had been forced into prostitution, um, child slaves, um, and just some work of international injustice. And I pursued that uh, for quite a while and found myself then at Bridgeway Foundation, uh, who have a mission statement to end mass atrocities on the globe. And that's really what your book to stop a warlord is about it's uh, as it says the story of justice grace and the fight for peace as you're trying to stop this thoroughly evil person mm. and 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 you so beautifully write in the book hey, as you're putting your precious little boys to bed and 
saying, I don't have to worry about someone coming and kidnapping them and forcing them into this horrific life. That's what was happening uh, in this part of the world. So let so how did all this get started, your involvement in what became guerrilla warfare, really, for you? Yes, and speaking of, one of those precious boys just shut his door, so sorry for the <laughs> background noise. They're home from school today, which is unusual, but of course, because of the ice storms. Um, but, you know, for... For us, it really was, um, we really came to a decision point. We've, we've long had this mission at, at the foundation to uh, to exist in a world without mass atrocities. And we have this money management and mutual funds company that is based in Houston that, um, that powers the foundation, right? That gives money away in furtherance of that mission. And we, um, we were doing an extraordinary amount of funding to different organizations across the globe, um, you know, as many as 50 countries at one point and hundreds of grants a year. And what I found when I was evaluating our grant work is that we were doing a lot of work on the front end in terms of really trying to, um, you know, trying to advocate for uh, other organizations to get involved in certain mass atrocities, uh, trying to fund some of those advocacy campaigns, trying to fund early warning networks. And then also on the back end of atrocities, we were doing things like rebuilding schools that might've been burned down during an atrocity and things like that. But we weren't really getting at the heart of our mission statement, which was truly to end mass atrocities on the globe. And so we had to take a really strong look at ourselves and um, and a look in the mirror and say, you know, do we either want to change our mission statement or do we want to actually try and be a material part of ending uh, mass atrocities on the globe? And we decided uh, we decided to do the latter. And as a result, uh, really surveyed uh, the atrocities that were currently on the globe. Unfortunately, there's usually never a lack of them. No. Uh, and seems like in today's times, uh, they're increasing in so many ways. Um, and in doing so, we found one that uh, was in Central and East Africa, and it was uh, part of just sort of Africa's longest running war. And it was a non-state actor. It was a um, it was a warlord, if you will, that um, that had been perpetrating some pretty horrific crimes with largely a, a child army initially uh, to per to perpetuate those crimes. And we decided that was where we were going to jump in and see if we could provide um, meaningful um, meaningful resources. Uh, to try and bring an end to that atrocity. And and in one case, I know it, it, it amounted to, what, a helicopter? I mean, a, a, a military armament to try to stop this man named Joseph Coney. Yeah, you know, it's, it was interesting. So Coney, um, at this point in the war, when we really started to take a hard look at whether or not we could intervene, um, you know, Coney and the LRA were operating in, in as many as four countries in that region. And uh, we, we spent a lot of time listening, a lot of time trying to understand from the local communities primarily who were affected by it, but also from people at the U.S. State Department, from other big organizations like Human Rights Watch and others. What were the missing pieces? Why was this continuing to happen and happen at the scale it was? And two things kept coming back in all of our, uh, all of our listening about that. Uh, the first being... Uh, 
a lack of communications uh, in these pretty and fairly remote areas in these regions, a lack of ability for them to warn each other of impending attacks, to, uh, you know, sort of to synthesize the data of, uh, of these um, various attacks and try to use those in a strategic way to bring about an end. And then the second was that um, there was a African Union force, uh, largely almost entirely made up of the Ugandan military, that was pursuing uh, the LRA, you know, in three countries um, that weren't you know, weren't their own. And, uh, and they needed certain amounts of training um, in terms of the terrain that they were going to have to operate in. And in terms of thinking about ways to approach this enemy with, um, with taking great cautions with regards to the children uh, that were under the command of this army. And so we looked at both of those things. The first one felt a little easier to me or a little more, uh, should I say, normal uh, to me, right? Communication systems. We found some incredible and extraordinary local partners um, that were willing to prop up a early warning network and a radio yeah, it, network. It was crucial that you they knew where this guy was operating because right. he would be undercover of, you know, could just pop up anywhere. That's right. And oftentimes would pop up and then you would see various pieces of that army sort of over the next three or four days do a multitude of attacks. So, right, if there was a way to warn nearby villages of the first attack, the hope would be that those um, those villagers could uh, potentially um, run away or uh, find other ways and means to sort of hide or protect themselves. So the communications one, um, as challenging as it was, was certainly the easier of the two. The second one, which was really unconventional for an organization like ours, probably for any private individual was this idea that we might um, provide resources for training um, for an army that was pursuing this actor. Well, and he had he had an army, but really they weren't necessarily willing participants. They had been kidnapped as children, these young young boys, and and brutally tortured really mentally into following this guy. But then when the opportunity came for them to leave, then it, it, you you did work it kind of that way. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think once you had um, the military in a position to um, to more effectively, if you will, provide a relentless pursuit of of the perpetrators, uh, then there were opportunities created by that relentless pursuit to try and uh, convince those who were never willing participants oftentimes in the first place um, had been, again, kidnapped as children. However, maybe kidnapped as a child 20 years ago, you yeah. know, uh, when they were 16 and now they're 36, uh, leading small groups uh, who were more than willing to defect and come out after those opportunities presented themselves. I want to talk about some of the characters that you that you so beautifully write about in uh, the book To Stop a Warlord. Uh, first is Desmond Tutu. Oh, yes. Um, Archbishop Tutu. I'm, what an ex gosh. What an extraordinary gift 
in my life that I uh, was able to have a mentor uh, like Archbishop Tutu. He uh, was part of a group called the Elders uh, that I was very fortunate to be on the advisory board for. He chaired it for a long time. And so we would see each other at least twice a year at our annual meetings. And um, we would also travel together to some of the areas that the Elders were working to try and seek change. Um, I. I just, um, I remember one time that, uh, and we, I affectionately called him Arch, as mm -hmm. did the rest of us. Um, I remember one time we were in Darfur together in Sudan, and, uh, and I just was constantly learning from Arch and several of the other elders. And uh, we were going out to one of the refugee camps, and it was really horrific. I mean, what we were witnessing when we were out there was... Um, the situation was dire. Uh, people didn't have enough food uh, to eat, right? They didn't have clean water. I mean, they were dying from very basic human needs. And I, I was sort of, if you will, bolted to the earth uh, in despair. Uh, it was it was a pretty awful scene as we sat there and visited with um, with the villagers and and tried to learn uh, from the refugees what what they faced. Um, and there was one extraordinary point during our time there when I think we were all just sitting there and all very devastated, uh, where I looked over at Arch and he uh, he started singing, mm. you know, and then he started dancing. And extraordinarily, the, um, the refugees also started singing and dancing. Uh, so we all joined in and sang and danced. And it was it was so confusing to me, and I was really struggling with you know what was what was going on there. And I remember when he and I rode back in the SUV together uh, to the place that we were staying. I I asked him. I said I said Arch, what was going on there? You know that was so sad. It, it, you know, and I um it was all I could do to to hold back tears in that moment. And and you started singing and dancing and, and, you know, then we all were singing and dancing. And he said, Oh, he said, Shannon, I was sad too. I was sad too, sister. I was crying inside. He said, um, he said, but joy is a discipline. Uh, he said, we have to practice joy in those moments. And I have to say, that's probably one of the single greatest things that I've learned in my life. And, um, it's been incredibly powerful to me because our work in mass atrocities is not um, is not for the faint of heart. It is uh, it is very challenging. It is uh, it, it is extremely difficult to see uh, these this level of treatment of um, children and and other human beings, and sometimes can can be very very heavy and depressing and. Um, and cause great grief. And that lesson from Arch, you know, in that moment that uh, that we should still, in the midst of that, right, practice joy as, as humans uh, has absolutely um, been a critical piece now of the work I pursue and has made the work I pursue just a little bit more manageable at times. Because the level, the level of depravity and... Well, it's just horrific. As you were you were sharing some of that with the the lunch crowd there at the Athena Awards, and you you had them in the palm of your hand. But you know, we lead these insulated lives. You know, not not really being aware of the things that you have uh, have dealt with. Some of the other characters in the book, I'd like to um 
to touch on uh, Laren Poole, a journalist, right? It was He was kind of the, the catalyst for this. Frozen, Frozen, Heroes. Gonna tell you about Frozen, Frozen, Heroes. Gonna tell you about. Hey, I'm Zach. And I'm Mike. And we have a fantastic new podcast to tell you about Bros, Foes, and Heroes. It's the two of us looking into the world of comics, breaking down some characters that you may have never heard of and some that are just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, so Zach comes up with a character each time, and uh, I go into it just completely blind. I don't know who this person is or what their abilities are or anything, and and basically I guess we kind of go over their origin story and just some of the ridiculous stuff that maybe, especially Golden Age stuff. Oh, Golden Age stuff is always the best, and we will make sure to highlight all of the shenanigans and just absolute weirdness of everything that's right so subscribe today and uh, follow us on instagram at bros bows heroes and if you don't i know where you live not really but please subscribe (laughs) bros and bros and heroes gonna tell you about bros and bros and heroes gonna tell you about One Star Rewind, a new podcast about those dreaded one-star reviews that every business owner hates to receive, but yet every customer loves to read. During this podcast, we will peel back that one-star review to better understand how it happened, when it happened, and what the business owner is doing after receiving that one-star review. This podcast will be about love, hate, and laughter. On One Star Rewind, we will meet with real business owners who will tell their stories and how they do rely on reviews for their business. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or download us at roguemedianetwork.com. Please subscribe, but only rate and review for not a one-star review. Join us each time for a new review and a new story. This is Sarah. And I'm Carter. And this is Some of Our Thoughts. We're two Southern sommeliers, and we want to share everything we love and know about wine. We started hanging out during quarantine and cooking and drinking and listening to music, and we just thought this would be a great way to bring everything we know to you guys. We will make wine knowledge and food pairings easy and approachable. So put on your favorite vinyl, grab your favorite glass of wine, tune into our show, and let's have some fun. Wine, wine and vinyl. vinyl. <laughs> so check us out on RogueMediaNetwork.com or wherever you get your favorite podcast. We'll be talking about a lot.
Yeah, Laren was Laren's extraordinary, and I dedicated the book to Laren, and I, we still work together today. Um, Laren was a part of one of the groups we were funding for the advocacy portion initially, uh, and was doing some films and some other work to try and shine a spotlight on this issue. Uh, he's one of the one of the individuals that introduced Bridgeway to this issue. And, you know, a few years into that work, he and I became quite close and both seemed to just not be okay with only doing advocacy uh, with sort of putting band-aids on bullet holes. Right. You use that expression. Yeah. That it, it, yeah, it it needs more than, than a a stopgap. Yeah. And we just, we both felt really called to act in this, in this situation and, And so I just remember one time after he had been to the White House and was having discussions about the U.S. intervening. And, you know, for most people, that would be a real high point, right, to spend some time there and and be able to have these discussions. And instead, he walked out and he called me and he said, Shannon, I just it's not going to be enough. You know, there's just not going to be enough intervention to bring about a close to this. And I remember saying, well, then maybe we need to be a part of that solution. Um, you know, maybe the, the people we're looking for are us and maybe we need to step in and try and do that. And he said, I'm there, I'm with you. Um, he was, he was CEO, um, and president of that organization for a while and, um, was willing to sort of leave that job and come join forces with me. And, uh, and we tried this together and, um, and that's been extraordinary. We, we've continued uh, to work together. And I think that's another a great lesson in life is that, especially when you're doing something hard, it's really important to do it with uh, trusted partners and uh, with people who share your vision uh, and share your heart for the world. Absolutely. And another character, David Ositi. Is that how O-Chitty, you say? Oh, yes, He was he was very involved. I mean, his story is 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 quite uh, compelling. Yes, David's an extraordinary man. Um, you know, just an incredible gift to all of us in humanity. And um, David was actually a victim of the LRA himself. Uh, the LRA had come into his small village in Uganda, his village in Pavo and uh, came one night to kidnap uh, the children as they so often did. And they rounded up the children and um, and David was a teenager. And uh, at one point the LRA asked David, you know, who do you love the most, your mother or your father, as they were both standing there. And David said, I can't answer, I can't answer that question. You know, um, how how is it possible? I love them the same. And, and they shoved a, a gun towards him and they said, who do you love the most? And he said his father, and then they shot and killed his father in front of him. Uh, That was not unusual, right? That was one of the LRA's tactics to bring fear and and to bring a group and a group of of children or even adults sometimes into submission uh, to further their cause. And at that point, David was taken away. Um, His brother was also taken at that time, but his brother was separated from him into a different group. And David was fortunate enough, fortunate enough to escape several months later. Um, after he escaped, he really struggled when he got back and tried to attend school. And uh, well, they didn't trust didn't trust him. Yeah, he was facing that. Yeah. 
So it was really challenging for him, but he stayed strong and has since committed his life and and still works with us today. Has really committed his life to what it looks like to help um, the rest of these individuals come out to a safe place and um, and reintegrate them in communities uh, that that they used to be a part of. Well, the, 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 the ending to the story, the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would, would say, not really the way you had envisioned it, but it still, it still worked. What, what is the latest on Joseph Coney? Yeah, so we have, we saw, you know, over a 90% reduction in abductions and killings. Um, and that, number right you know we we did sort of pull back our resources we kept sort of a watch over what was going on with the lra but the numbers had gotten very small in terms of their reach and uh and the effect they were having on communities so we did focus on uh, some other areas of atrocity where we were seeing much 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 larger um uh, populations affected and uh, to date, those numbers just continue to decrease. Um, last year, uh, there were there were only, I think, three individuals that uh, died at the hands of the LRA. Uh, and Joseph Coney really remains in hiding, uh, as he uh, so often did during mm-hmm. this time. Right, he utilized others uh, to perpetuate sort of his his terror. Uh, so, what was it you said? Rather than rather than go after the head of the snake, go after the snake is that i mean you even passed out leaflets to try to encourage members of the lra at the time when he was going strong to to abandon him yes i think sort of as a westerner i always assumed that the end to the lra would come likely by cutting the head off the snake right Mm -hmm. like getting rid of joseph coney but we we found out um, after an attempt, you know, which is described in the book, to uh, to capture Coney, um, a very um, a very formidable attempt that did fail, and Coney did escape. Um, you know, we had to reset how we thought about it, and uh, and at that point, really realized that there were so many people a part of this group that didn't weren't there by choice and didn't want that life. And so we began mass defection campaigns from the helicopters that we had hired. We would drop leaflets describing um, describing to individuals who were fighting in the LRA how they could walk out to safety. The Ugandan government did an extraordinary job of choosing to give amnesty to those who voluntarily walked out, as long as they weren't one of the original International Criminal Court and DITs, which Coney and a couple of his top commanders were. And we would take pictures of some who had defected and had left and showed them back home in their villages. And then we even went as far at times we were getting so much intelligence and information with regards to different areas where these smaller groups were operating. And so you you would have this child at 16 who was kidnapped, who's now 36, that's running a group in a particular area. And we felt pretty certain that we had good GPS coordinates of a general region in which they were operating. And David Ochidi, who's extraordinary, would go back to the village they were originally captured from 20 years ago and um, look for living parents, look for living siblings. Um, you know, he was able to find uh, one of these gentlemen's mothers, right, and and told them, your son is still out there. He still is alive um, from what we know. Uh, we would love to encourage him to walk out 
And David would take his iPhone and record messages um, from these family members, in this case, from um, one of the mothers, Dwag, Dwag Pacho, um, you know, come, come home, my son, mm. I've never stopped waiting for you. Uh, and then we bought these huge uh, speakers that we would um, that we put on either side of the helicopter and opened the doors and plugged in these messages and then just would hover over a general area that we thought um, these folks might be operating and just play the sounds of, of their mothers or family members uh, asking them to come out to safety. And that was really what stopped. Yeah stopped this in the in the long run or put put the largest dent in it that was really sort of cutting this the snake off the head rather <laughs> right and um, had almost 800 people walk out in that final year which really did collapse the group from within so uh, a, a good ending for sure all that takes money and that's what uh, bridgeway as you say is involved with what are you involved with now what is happening now yeah, so we're focusing on several things right now. We're, we're still focusing in the Central and East Africa region, some overlap um, in the same region that we uh, we were doing some of the uh, counter LRA work. We're working, um, you know, to, to financially do some financial tracing and um, and try to help um, get defections from a ISIS group in Central Africa mm. uh, called formerly called ADF, um, currently uh, often referred to as ICAP, ISIS Central Africa province. And um, and then we're also doing quite a bit of work in Ukraine now. What What is the status there? What are you seeing? Yeah, I've spent quite a bit of time there since the war began. Um, and, you know, we're we're saying humanity is not only witnessing, but sort of in some ways standing idly by to um, to a few um, really um, awful perpetrators making a decision uh, to to wreak havoc and terror um, across a country in in Europe, and um, it's it's shocking. Uh, Russia has. Um, led, of course, by by Putin, has made the decision to largely attack uh, civilian infrastructure, um, apartment buildings, and energy sources in this dire time of winter, um, and even trying to stop, if you will, the, the grain coming out of Ukraine. Ukraine is um, a breadbasket for the world mm -hmm. and for several countries in Africa that rely on that to avoid starvation. Um, you know, there are horrific war crimes being committed and uh, Ukraine is, uh, the Ukrainian people are, gosh, they're all, they're unlike almost anything I've ever seen. They are uh, so courageous. And I think they're fighting for all of us to a large degree um, in terms of just really fighting for uh, democracy, fighting for freedom and, um, you know, fighting for freedom from from tyranny and uh, terror. And um, I'm just I'm I, I'm just often stunned when I'm there and and bear witness to some of the horror that they are that they are undergoing. And um, but I'm also so inspired um, by them. 
the world is responding and, and, and in some ways, um, you know, we have done, we have done quite a bit. There's, there's much more we can do. Um, but we have, uh, you know, the, the West has, has done, uh, quite a bit in terms of sending weapons and other resources to try to help and stop this war. How can people get involved in helping with the work? I know uh, your book is available and um, there's ways through purchasing the book to help, uh, correct? And um, so so how can how can just the average person be contributing somehow to to stop with these atrocities? Yeah, I think it's very important that, uh, you know, as just as fellow human beings, that we take note of what's going on on the globe, right? That's the first step. And oftentimes that feels almost unsatisfactory to us. It's almost like we'd rather not know if knowing oh, it's hard. is going to make us sad. And then we feel like there's nothing we can do. Yeah. But it's really incredibly important. I mean, I hear over and over from people in these different environments how much it means to them that the world's watching and the world's taking note of the extraordinary challenges they're facing. So that is certainly one way to express solidarity. And then, you know, we really have to hold all of our leaders to account as well. Um, we need to support our leaders who are willing um, to uh, give government resources, U.S. resources to try and make a difference. It's really important for them to hear from us and to know that we uh, we support those decisions because they oftentimes hear from those who um, who might be skeptical of that. Uh, and then if you're really interested in getting more and more involved, um, you know, financial resources, no matter how small, are always helpful. There's extraordinary organizations doing work day to day on the ground. Um, it's a it's a great way to participate. And oftentimes, um, sometimes people really want to go and, and be a part of change. And a lot of times those same organizations that might be available to financially support will have opportunities for folks to volunteer and be involved. Well, you have raised awareness here in Central Texas, for sure, Shannon. And, and I appreciate so much you taking some time to be with us today uh, on our podcast because the work you're doing is so incredibly important and um, you've put yourself, your your life on the line many times uh, traveling to these places to learn more and to help. And, and again, I just appreciate your time, Shannon Cedric Davis. To Stop a Warlord is the name of the book. You'll want to go to, I guess, Amazon and you can get it there and uh, share it with your friends. Have your have your book group read it. I mean, it's it's an excellent it's an excellent. You're a wonderful writer. Um, you got another book in you? Ha ha ha! I don't know. That's one of the hardest things I've ever done was writing that story. That yeah. story was almost too sacred for paper. Yeah. So um, it was it was really a challenge and making sure that the spotlight really remained on the true heroes. And those true heroes are people like David and others who are undergoing this suffering day to day and coming up with remarkably creative solutions. Um, but uh, I, you know, I still have a little bit of trauma maybe from the book writing process. So maybe <laughs> not yet on another one. <laughs> well, I, mission accomplished on this one for sure, Shannon. Uh, but again, I, I thank you so much for your time being with us today. 
Thank you too. It was my joy. I really appreciate it. And thank you for putting a spotlight on this important stuff. Well, it's, it's my honor. Thank you. And thank you for being with us for Central Texas Life. We'll see you again next time. Bye-bye. Central Texas Life with Ann Harder is part of the Rogue Media family. Be sure to check out our other shows at roguemedianetwork.com. Please rate this show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Join us again soon for more Central Texas Life with Ann Harder.